Sit. Good boy. Almost the entire world agrees that there is no better therapy than the company of a dog. Today, we sit down to talk about just that with Marine Corps combat veteran B.J. Ganim. Uh, drove the vehicle through a, a victim-initiated IED, so they ran a tripwire across the road mm-hmm. and tied it to three uh, 155 Russian-made artillery shells that went off at perfect timing right at my door. And I'd gone through 12 other IEDs in danger-close situations, mm-hmm. but they could never time it right. Um, so this one got me. Um, it killed my gunner, Ryan Contafio, from Beaver Dam and injured uh, three other Marines that were able to return to duty. Myself, I ended up being medevaced, um, eventually amputated the leg below the knee. Uh, the foot was completely destroyed and had some shards of glass in the left eye and a few other scars here and there, but uh, pretty much ended my Marine Corps career, which I wasn't ready for. Like, when you get ready for war... You think about, you plan out your wills, and you, you understand that there's a chance you might not come back. And you understand that, you know, when you come back, you probably have to go again. But you never really think about the stuff in the middle. At least I didn't. I didn't think about the stuff in the middle. After his time in Iraq so dramatically changed his life, BJ found inspiration for his next chapter in an old English bulldog. And there was times when I was pretty close to, you know, just saying, hey, I should have died in Iraq, right? Yeah. But I had this dog, this uh, old English bulldog that I'd gotten on my first convalescent leave from um, Walter Reed, and I got it in Madison off Craigslist or something like okay. that. He was eight weeks old, just all head and, and <laughs> ruffles, and he would sleep on my neck. And as he grew and got bigger, um, he always instinctively knew when I was having phantom pains and would just lay on my leg, and that really just made, made a world of difference, right? It really helped me to start realizing that you know, I had to pick myself up, dust myself off, and, and figure out what was next. After his own experience with his dog, BJ founded Sierra Delta, a nonprofit devoted to pairing veterans with therapy dogs. Just knowing that Sierra Delta, first of all, has that whole brotherhood um, aspect. You know, this is veterans helping veterans. For me, after serving six years in the United States Army, um, a big portion of who I was it was tied to being part of a pack or part of a team. Hard to put into words uh, the feeling I had when I came home and I you know, saw this you know, new puppy that was now my, my buddy Zoe for life. Um, but it felt like a puzzle piece slid into a, uh, a missing spot. For me, one of the best things that I learned about Sierra Delta was not just the service dogs, but the access to a veteran community. You know, you have to have a battle buddy in everything you do. You know, they always want us to go in Paris somewhere. Um, so he's been that battle buddy. So Leland has become my partner. You know, I lost my squad. I don't have them anymore. But now I've got a new squad, and that's my husband, and that's Leland. This is the Right Idea Podcast. Welcome to season three of the Right Idea Podcast. I'm Kevin Nicholson, volunteer president and CEO of No Better Friend Corp. In this season, we're highlighting the creativity and the work ethic of Wisconsin's businesses and organizations. Today, we're interviewing Marine Corps veteran BJ Ganim, founder of Sierra Delta, a nonprofit that pairs veterans with their life buddies or therapy dogs. In today's episode with BJ, we discuss his service in Afghanistan and Iraq, some of the realities of the VA healthcare system, and the story behind how he founded Sierra Delta to help thousands of veterans find relief and support through adopting dogs. 
This is the Right Idea Podcast. Well, welcome to the Right Idea Podcast, folks. We're with BJ Gannon, and he's the founder of Sierra Delta, a Marine Corps veteran, and he's going to share his story with us today. BJ, we are thrilled to have you here. Well, thanks for having me. So I joined the United States Marine Corps in 1996, graduated high school in 95, went to college, and was politely asked not to come back <laughs> after a year. And so I got drunk. I watched Legends of the Fall, and I thought, you know, what Brad Pitt did sounds pretty awesome. Who's, where can I do that? And apparently it was the United States Marine Corps. So yeah. I joined on a whim. Um, I went to boot camp December 15th. And I planned that purposely so that I could get out of graduate boot camp with my 10-day leave happening over St. Patrick's Day in Savannah, which is a huge party. So I missed Christmas, missed New Year's, missed Super Bowl, so I could get out in time for um, St. Patrick's Day. And that was as far as I planned my military (laughs) uh, recruitment and planning. That's awesome. That's all you have to plan, though. That's really it, yeah. They did. Yeah, Yeah. I had 10 days of just, I woke up after St. Patrick's Day night in West Palm Beach, Florida, um, didn't realize I climbed in the car with some cousins and went down there. I stayed down there for a couple of days yeah. and then took a train back to Savannah where, I, where I'm from. And another cousin picked me up and took me to Athens and I partied there for a couple of days and I came back to Savannah to catch a bus to Camp Lejeune to go to infantry school. So, okay. and that's when it kind of dawned on me that, Oh wait, this is four years, right? Right. But, um, it was a great experience. I mean, 96 to 2000, it was Nothing really going on, you know, um, training in the field without rounds or even blanks was, you know. No blanks, seriously. No blanks. You were yelling bang, bang in the professional United States Marine Corps infantry. Really? It was Clinton era. So, I mean, yeah. there was not a, lot, not a lot of money. Different world. Yeah. And, you know, at that time, it, it didn't look like there was anybody left to fight. So, you know, it was um, a, definitely a different time. So, I made the decision to get out in 2000. and. Okay go com- conquer the corporate world and took a job with Nabisco here in Wisconsin, which brought me up here. Okay. And they were bought out pretty quickly uh, by Kraft. And okay. so, right. But I stayed in the reserves because I still loved what I did in the, in the Marine Corps. I still loved wearing a uniform. And right. uh, so I signed up with Golf Company out of Madison, uh, infantry battalion there, or company there, uh, a part of 2nd Battalion, 24th Marines. And didn't really think anything of it. And, um, you know, 9-11 happens, and all of a sudden the world changed, right? And we were, on, we were set to go in 2003, but Turkey shut down their borders, so our orders got revoked. Okay. And then we were ordered to go to Iraq in 2004. Um, you know, we were fully activated. So it was it, how long after 9-11 were you fully activated it was three years after that so oh, okay. I mean, so 2004 so we were fully activated in may of 2004 got it and so yeah i mean september so two and a half years okay. somewhere in there so uh what that would have been oef2 yep. um you know first fallujah been around that time i think second fallujah was going on while we were there and um it was definitely eye-opening it was um um an experience I tell people because I don't want people to think I'm a warmonger or anything, but I loved my time in combat. It's it's freeing, and I and I say that even though we saw the horrible things and bad things happen to me too. But it's it was I think what America needs to understand is they can be proud of the majority of the men and women. Now we've seen plenty of reports come back of some bad things happening. Abu Ghraib was one of them. The Black Hearts to actually 
took over for us. You know, want to read a book, read Black Hearts. It, it tells about that. But for the most part, and, and and I still keep in touch with some of those Iraqis uh, that you? are back there. Yeah, Local yeah. Through really yeah, okay. I mean, we did some good things, and um, and it's 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 one of those tough situations, right? There's no good answer. You can be proud of the work that we did there and understand like the the larger mission and the end completion of the right. wars was highly complicated and, and, and in my opinion I'm not putting words in yeah. about like not well handled. But and you think about the day to day work that we did yeah. to eliminate threats to people and not just local nationals in Iraq and Afghanistan, but people across the world. Right. And the people you're fighting alongside. Right. The quality of the humans that you're serving with, yeah. the Marine Corps and the other services. And the other nations. I mean, you know, I mean, so many other nations took part in. And they're right. I mean, we gave everybody that had a beef with the Western society, in particular America, they could come to Iraq and fight us versus. Yeah. And they did. I mean, it was people from Syria, Jordania, Somalia. I mean, all over the place. And the Iraqis were caught in the middle. Um, So anyways, uh, Thanksgiving night, 2004, um, we're doing what we normally do is uh, ghosting. convoys we lived underneath a bridge there on okay. route tampa and wait for these big supply convoys i don't know why the army didn't get the the, the notice that we shouldn't have these huge targets going up and down these roads, down the roads, roads right. with their yeah. lights on yeah. but they would they would do it anyways and i get it we got to get the supplies up there so we would wait for them to get shot at and then we would peel off and go take care of the people doing the shooting okay. um on thanksgiving night um full moon it was a uh, pretty quiet night on the way back uh, drove the vehicle through a, a victim-initiated IED. So they ran a tripwire across the road mm-hmm. and tied it to three uh, 155 Russian-made artillery shells that went off at perfect timing right at my door. And I'd gone through 12 other IEDs in danger-close situations, mm-hmm. but they could never time it right. right. Um, so this one got me. Um, it killed my gunner, Ryan Contafio, from Beaver Dam and injured uh, three other Marines that were able to return to duty. Myself, I ended up being medevaced, um, eventually amputated the leg below the knee. Uh, The foot was completely destroyed and had some shards of glass in the left eye and a few other scars here and there, but uh, pretty much ended my Marine Corps career, which I wasn't ready for. Like, when you get ready for war, you think about, you plan out your wills and you, you understand that there's a chance you might not come back. And you understand that, you know, when you come back, you probably have to go again. But you never really think about the stuff in the middle. At least I did. So, uh, you're right. You know, and so that that was a tough one to get over. And in the beginning, I can tell you, I I did it, um, well, I guess the stereotypical way, right? Went to drinking, was mad, fighting, got charged with a DUI, thank goodness. It was around that time that I, you know, was going through a divorce and a bankruptcy and all that stuff a year after being injured, right? So I got... Where were you? Like physically, were you back in Wisconsin? Or you so I spent time in Walter Reed. Okay. Um, I went in Bethesda first. Okay. And then I went to Walter Reed. And so I was there. I was in Longstool for three weeks. Three? Yeah. So the medevac took you to what, Baghdad and out to Germany? And then... Well, I had a truck out from the site because we couldn't bring in a, we had a small ambush happening. So okay. it was a hot LZ. Okay. Uh, couldn't land the choppers even though I heard them overhead. Yep. So I had to get trucked back to Mamadia, uh, Fob St. Mike's, if anybody served in that same area. And then from there, uh, f- uh, flown to 
went on Blackhawk to Baghdad, where he did the initial amputations and, and uh, triage surgery. Okay. Um, I got to give it up to my guys. I mean, as we had a small ambush going, our corpsman, Doc Munoz, took good care of me. Everybody did their job and held back off the, the ambush, so it was really good. Um, from Baghdad, I went to Balad and Balad to Longstuhl, okay. Longstuhl to Andrews Air Force Base, Andrews Air Force Base to Bethesda, Bethesda to Walter Reed, and then eventually to Wisconsin. I want to talk more about what you were just talking about, the strife that you're going through. What were the conditions like at Walter Reed while you were there? Obviously, the last one made it them. Yeah, no, actually, I was there whenever they had to open up the closed wings, right? And there was all that big hoopla about, you know, our America sucks and no one knows what they're doing. And what people fail to realize is that when planning for this war, the best stats that they had was from the Vietnam War. And if they were able to get to you while you were breathing in Vietnam, you had a 49.7% chance of survival, I think it was. So they estimated, I think it was like 68%, 70% survival rate for Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. We ended up, because not only because of the forward medicine that we were able to put in, in these wars with actually having surgeons there on the front lines, right. but everybody in every... I know, especially in the Marine Corps, everybody was trained for combat medics. Yeah. And so that, everyone knew how to tie a tourniquet, everybody knew how to put an IV in, everybody knew how to do everything. So you didn't completely rely on your corpsmen or your medics. Right. So with all that, the United States military exceeded anybody's rightful prediction because if they got to you while you were still breathing, you had a 98.6% chance of survival. I've actually never heard that. And we've got five living quadruple amputees. We've got vets that um, are blind and deaf, you know, uh, some severe head injuries. And a lot of them are thriving. Right. You know, you look at Travis. Travis Mills is a perfect example. He's one of the five quadruples. And he's got a young family. He's got his own nonprofit that, that does retreats. He's out there speaking all the time. You know, more. all these guys are doing great. So... Right. And that never gets reported, and I don't understand why, because we always want to get better. But you got to look at, you know, and still, when they opened up the the closed wings, they weren't that bad. It wasn't like... Back at Walter Reed. Back at Walter Reed, yeah, sorry. Yeah, when they opened up those closed rings that got everybody so infuriated, it, it was still a modern hospital. Right. Right. Like, I mean, well, now it, you're into politics. Sorry, I don't mean to get in. I don't mean to get into politics. <laughs> no, you I really don't. Politics, but but you're, that's the answer to your question. Uh, yeah, exactly. Well, that's why I just I, I always try to tell that story because I think it. I mean, trust me. If you want anything really screwed up, just give it to the government. They'll screw it up. <laughs> right. Um, but, you know, when you look at the planning that went into this, um, th- there was no way, no way in your right mind you could predict that 98 Point six percent of the people would survive right. and and prepare for that and put the resources behind it. So, I think what should have happened is people should have celebrated uh, the best military force that's ever walked on the face of this earth. And it's not just for our fighting capabilities; it's for our abilities to do to switch and go into humanitarian aid. You know, while we were fighting a war against terrorists, we were re- rebuilding people's power. Mm-hmm. That was one of the greatest things I saw about being in a re- reserve unit was that we had electricians and plumbers and doctors and all in the enlisted. 
And so when we got into these villages and people were having trouble with water or electricity or heck, we, uh, one of our corpsmen is a um, emergency uh, uh, EMT down in Miami-Dade, right. right? So he right. has a ton of experience and he helped deliver a baby okay. that was all jumbled up inside. And I don't know. So there's so many things that our military force can do, but the reason why we broke the DOD medical system is because we were so good at saving ourselves on the front lines, and that should have been the leading story. Uh, I, yes, and again, I didn't know the stat. Uh, you said 98? 98. Yeah, I, but yes, the survivability factor was huge, and it put a huge stress on the yeah. military medical system. And it gets, you're speaking about a whole bunch of stuff, but like, sorry, but, uh, no, no, yeah. it's great. And that's why I, I added an extra shot to this coffee. So that <laughs> could have been a mistake. <laughs> make our conversation even no, but you're talking about last, so we always fight the last war, right? You talked about like, yep. the survivability uh, statistics out of Vietnam. Usually the vehicles that were sent over there are up armor, all those kind of things, right? Like that was a uh, great sport in the media to, to criticize the fact that we weren't on day one ready for the threats that we sure. present. present. There is an adaptation that's going to take place when you go to a whole new battle, battlefield and yep. a whole new enemy threat level. Right. And then you have a whole other uh, set of logistical and, and medical uh, yeah. demands that are placed on you by, in part, technology working and also, too, human training working yep. to make more people survive. You know, and the up armors had their own. I mean, you, up armors weren't the answer because as soon as you got off the main road, up armors were useless in that Iraqi mud. Them. Yeah. They and so. Them. I mean, tactics play because we didn't have up armor vehicles. Right. We put a lot of the, our own uh, sandbags in the floor and different um, armaments on it. Right. Um, but that helped us stay light. And our tactics, like I said, I went through 12 IEDs before the last one in a softer vehicle. And right. all of us survived with minimal injuries because of tactics. Right. I think too often people are looking for that magic pill. You can throw a tank out there, but if you can't maneuver, it's, you're well, just a sitting target. Yeah, exactly. Coming up from underneath, they're not made for it. Yeah, no, I, um, well, that was it, right? And that, that was a media onslaught that we all heard of, like, this Walter Reed is horrific, but then it was also, there's not enough up armor, so then the answer was slap up armor on everything. Right. Just like later when I was there, I mean, every vehicle yeah. had you know, 500 pound doors and right. no doubt that did, that did help in certain cases, but it created other problems exactly. and that included vehicles getting stuck all the time and not being trafficable. And then that leaving you more exposed to ambushes and right. a whole other set of complications. And the gas that it uses up I mean, you have to refill, refuel more because of the extra weight. It, there's so many things, you know, right. and that's where, you know, a lot of these armchair quarterbacks that we see all over the country, and I'm probably one of them too. I give my two cents whenever somebody puts a <laughs> mic. But you got to take in mind that if um, there's there's never a simple answer. There's always a, a cause and effect. Right. Right? right. So if you try to make the vehicle safer, you've got to give up something else. Because most of the time you've given up maneuverability, you're giving up, you know, and that's where the tactics have got to really come in. Right. And that's where training and training hard, right, right? And ensuring that the people that we have in service can meet those standards. Right. And Absolutely. especially for the job work, because there's no longer you can delineate front lines from back lines. No. Not not in, in this, wars. not in these wars and not for any wars that we're going to come up. Um, so we need to think about that paramount and then fill, fill out everything else after that. Yeah. But so, I mean, sorry, I got sidetracked, but, you know, I went to Iraq and then got medically retired, and that was the end of my military career, about nine and a half years. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, I still had a job with Kraft Foods. You know, they held it for me when I came back. Okay. And, um, but it was a tough, it was tough to be in the hospital and know that my, my whole unit was still over there. They didn't get back until April of 2005. And so that, that's still what, like if you're going to break down my PTSD, if it will, right. is that I only have a half a combat deployment and that bothers me. And that, it shouldn't. I shouldn't. I know. That, that, I know the rationale right. behind it, right? And right. I can make. I know rationally it shouldn't, but that doesn't. That doesn't silence the the feelings, right? I know most people think that guys like us don't have feelings. We got feelings. <laughs> They're just. Well, I get told that all the time. <laughs> right? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. We do got feelings, um, and and that's one of them, you know. And 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 that's where. Um, you know, at first I buried myself in, in work and in school mm-hmm. and doing all those things. And then um, also drinking, which was you know, not the right way to do it. Right. Um, and being just angry. And that, you know, imploded my life a bit there in 2005 and 2006. I had a great family, great friends, uh, good connections. And um, and I was struggling. And, and it got to the point to where... Uh, I got charged with a DUI, you know, this was after the divorce, but in the middle, or after the bankruptcy, but in the middle of a bad divorce, you know, and that would have caused me to lose my job with Kraft Foods. And so it was a scary moment in there. um, And, and there was times when I was pretty close to, you know, just saying, hey, I should have died in Iraq, right? But I had this dog, this uh, old English bulldog that I'd gotten on my first convalescent leave from um, Walter Reed, and I got it in Madison off Craigslist or something like okay. that. He was eight weeks old, just all head and and <laughs> ruffles, and he would sleep on my neck. And as he grew and got bigger, um, he always instinctively knew when I was having phantom pains and would just lay on my leg, and that really just made, made a world of difference, right? right. But he wasn't trained. There was nothing really special about him other than he can get slobber in places that you didn't know slobber could get to. You know, clear a room with his farts. You know, eat piping hot cheeseburger in one bite. You know, it's just nothing good, right? And so in those darkest moments, it was him that I knew that if I did something drastic like that, no one would take care of him. He'd end up in a pound and end up getting put down, right? Because he's a scary-looking dog. So, um that that forced me to sit down and eat a whole bunch of humble pie, write a bunch of letters to my commanding officer, other people I knew. We're able to work with the police department, the court systems. We didn't. I didn't get uh, convicted of a DUI. I got charged with, and convicted of a reckless driving, okay. with the caveat that if they ever see my ugly mug in court again, they're going to throw away the key. And I haven't been back since. And but it really helped me to start realizing that, you know, I had to pick myself up dust myself off and, and figure out what was next. Right. And and that's what I eventually ended up doing. I mean, I ended up leaving Kraft and going to work at Dane County as the Dane County Veteran Service Officer. Okay. I was excited for that role. You know, when I took over, they were still doing appointments by pen, pencil and paper. Okay. And what year uh, is that? this is 2011. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Um, you know, Dane County, to, to my knowledge, still has still runs their payroll with carbon paper so every thursday every everybody fills out their timesheets on carbon paper and every thursday everybody from around the county drives into mlk to drop off i think the pink and the yellow copies 
and then they pick up a receipt of a pay of a direct deposit and then drive it back to everybody else. This happens every Thursday. Can I make a joke about progressives in government? Sure. <laughs> Go ahead. No, a joke makes itself. Right? It does. You know, so, um, I mean, in the, and at Dane County has, the, the last I checked was like 2013. They still have like seven storage units that are just dedicated to housing all this carbon paper. All the carbon paper? Back yeah. up. Yeah, That's and it's insane. all inside. The, you can go to in the executive's office. As you walk down the aisle, it's all files and files and files of carbon paper. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, so I got disenfranchised with the government like within a year and a half, and I left and went to work for a Semper Fi Fund. Okay. Um, Tell help. us about their mission. So Semper Fi Fund um, was started by Karen Gunther. She's a, a nurse, and she was married to a Marine, and she was seeing a bunch of us coming back injured and no real services. And so they really decided to make a mission about helping all the ill and injured uh, from these wars. Mm-hmm. And they actually helped me right away. When I was in Walter Reed, I wasn't getting paid. They stopped my pay when I got to Longstool because they had put me on the kill list. But I wasn't Are you dead. kidding? I'm not kidding. And it took them six months to figure it out where the, the thing was. So Simplify stepped in and paid well, my you bills. You paid for six months? Yeah, but Simplify Fund stepped in and was like paying the bills. Until, I'm all for the Simplify Fund right. doing that, but my mind is blown by yeah. the United States. Well, no. I mean, well, I mean, think about it. All the Marines that were in on Walter Reed, we couldn't get meal cards because we were Marines. So we had to go to the... Because uh, it's an Army hospital? Right. I mean, I we they ended they me. ended up fixing it, but it took them forever, and it took a bunch of us complaining. Again, it's just a bureaucracy, right? Right. Um, but so yeah, clear. You're separate, and I, I just want to reflect back. Like your comments on Walter Reed opened up the, the wings. It's still a modern hospital. Yep. Medical professionals yep. are doing the best to serve you guys. Yep. But you take that step back and just talk about the insanity of government bureaucracy yeah. and like Marines receiving medical. So we care. were staying at the Malone House, which is a a house that's on Walter Reed. It's uh-huh. like a hotel, right? And downstairs they had a, uh, what we'd call like a, uh, you know, just like a, they'd have like hamburgers and, yeah. and pizza and stuff. Yeah. You know, it's still $6 a hamburger, all this other stuff. So, you know, so we were paying for our meals. Um, and then if we went to the chow hall at the hospital, we had to pay there too. And it was just, and every, like we kept raising it, like all the dignitaries that would come in and, like, hey, yeah, if you can help us get a meal card, that'd be great, you know. Yeah, and it and eventually got done. I mean, just like, yeah. I mean, you know, but you had to get squeaky about it, which is, you know, I still can't figure it out. So but. you were, okay, you're paying for the meals, but and your pay was stopped? The U.S. government yeah. pay was stopped for six months? Yep. And they eventually gave you back pay? Yeah, they gave me back pay, all that stuff. But the Semper Fi Fund stepped in, paid the bills, paid me in a lot, and they didn't ask for any of it back. So, you know, and even uh, Mark Cuban sent ten grand and um, through his organization. So there was a lot of people that stepped up right away. So it didn't cause any hardship because of what, you know, is great about our society is that, you know, you got free people that are willing to step up and do the right, do thing. The right thing. Yeah. So you call it, yeah, and I think that's important to call out. Like, that is, yes, one of the beauties of American mm-hmm. civic society is people take the initiative right. to do the right thing and, and have built this country the way it is. But again, you're, you're calling out some real cautions for the idea that government can solve every problem. There's basic problems with right. this, like the rudimentary stuff, like paying injured Marines their salary and mm-hmm. or making sure that people 
active duty in a government hospital aren't having to buy their meals. So I think that's one thing to call for listeners, right? When you hear this stuff, that's absurd, um, especially when you think about the dignitaries flowing through. Uh, Walter Reed at that point, any one of them should be able to make a phone call. And a lot of them were. I mean, again, it's just when you've got a bureaucracy, well, yeah. Should have been able to bust through it, and if they you should be able to, right, right. That's that's. Crazy. But that's what happens when you, when when you have paralysis by analysis, yeah. right? When you're trying to make sure that no one falls through the cracks, almost everybody falls through the cracks because you're not doing anything. Yeah. And so, you know, you can't be afraid to fail. Yeah. And that's one thing that I learned in, in just in life, you know, because that's where you get your best lessons, and. You have to stand up and say when you fail and when you've done something and learn from that and make the changes from it. So, but yeah, I mean, we can get at Simplify Fun and uh, it's great. You know, we're we have the team Simplify. We have a bunch of adaptive sports. Uh, We stood up the veteran to veteran program, which allowed veterans to also talk to other veterans that, you know, like myself, I ended up getting my um, social work degree from the University of Southern California with the emphasis okay. on military life. Where were you physically located? Were you in? In Madison. Yeah, Madison. so I worked yeah. remotely, just traveled all over the country. I did my courses online before the whole pandemic thing. Before yeah. it was cool to be yeah, online, I was on. Yeah, exactly. Now I hate being online all the time. So, <laughs> But, um, you know, so I, that was going great. And um, I was doing a lot of speaking on the sides. Things were going good. I... I, I was noticing a lot of vets utilizing dogs yeah. um, in a bunch of different ways. And so I just started playing around with what we could do better in that. And um, I really got a jolt from President Bush. So President Bush came to, I happened to be one of the vets that he visited at uh, Walter Reed. Okay. And uh, we built, you know, we stayed in touch a little bit. And um, I was chosen to be one of the vets he painted in the portraits of courage and told stories so that was a huge honor and he's a good painter he's a good great painter um i always said i always thanked him that i get put in the smithsonian museum like 20 pounds lighter than i really was i you know (laughs) thanks for making me skinny for history you know um but you know president bush had said he told me he calls me belushi too that's my nickname (laughs) and uh he goes belushi i can give five million dollars any one of these dog companies and it won't move the needle at all and uh you know, when I started um, looking into dogs and how we could do it better, he was absolutely right. Um, it was just a, a system that was completely broken. So I know we're going to get into Sierra Delta later, but that's kind of where I ended up leaving Simplify Fund mm-hmm. once I started putting together and, and built support around this other nonprofit, uh, Sierra Delta, and um, broke out on my own in 2017. So it was straight from Semper Fi Fund to starting up Sierra yeah. Delta? Okay. So, yeah. So you saw the need. You see that this is – talk to me. What's broken in terms of the existing infrastructure? Well, what you have is you have – it's a guide dog model, mm-hmm. right? So a lot of these companies have been around for 40, 50 years mm-hmm. doing guide dogs for both deaf and blind mm-hmm. folks. But we don't have as many deaf and blind folks anymore and deaf and blind folks that we do have are not using dogs as much because of other techno- technological advances. So what they did is dogs do help with a lot of, you know, across not just veterans, but across a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Right. But what they did is they took their guide dog model and just basically said, now we're going to go help the vets okay. and people with PTSD. Right. Well, they're, requirements are much stricter than they need to be, especially if you're treating PTSD, Okay. right? You mean like for the training of the animal? For the training of the animal and and all that. Because 
again, only about a half a percent of the veterans actually need a public access medical assistance dog. Okay. But that's what they're trying to force on all vets that want to get help with dogs. Okay. And these dogs, you know, average $35,000 a dog. Okay. America's Vet Dogs is probably one of the best well-known. They say it costs them 65000 a dog, right? Well, they only do 50 vets a year. Um, Canines for Warriors does about 80 to 100 vets a year. CCI does about 36 vets a year. Uh, Southeastern Guide Dogs does somewhere in the neighborhood of 30, 35 vets a year. Okay. Uh, Patriot Paulus does like 20 vets a year. You got Hero Dogs that does two vets a year. You add it all up, it's less than 1,000 vets a year getting help okay. with dogs. But there's a ton of money around it. I'm not saying they're doing bad. It's just it's a flawed model. Because they're training to a standard that's required. Right. And, yeah, right. right. And this, the, the ones that they're training to the standard to only serves a half a percent okay. of the vets. When in reality, we can treat this as preventive maintenance, mm-hmm. uh, preventive medicine, invite all the vets to take part in some port of dog therapy. So what we built at Sierra Delta was a way that we could monitor the training using a digital platform okay. and an app. And then we've also gamified it for the vets. Okay. So now it's a fun thing to do. It's not a therapy thing to do. Right. Right. And so they can utilize an existing dog or we can help them find a, a, um, a rescue. You know, we, we connect them with people that can help. We figure out what, they're, what they want out right. of their dog relationship. And then we help find the resources to get that. And then we pay for the training and then monitor it as it's going on. Okay. Um, and then they get rewards for what they do, not, not just in completing training, but what they do with their dog. Like say if they go volunteer at a animal rescue okay. or they go volunteer at a homeless shelter or they go to an old folks home, especially an old vets home with their dogs, hang out. We get points into their system. They get swag or okay. there's experiences. You know, we go and play flag football against NFL alums. You earn your earn these things by doing more in your own community. And it sounds like you're creating community. Too. Exactly. Right. And so there's videos on the game that teaches them play games with their dogs that reinforces the training, which is all just good canine citizen behavior, right? right? right. And a public access service dog just has to pass the good canine citizen plus plus test. Okay. That's it. And every year they're supposed to pass it. So it's nothing super special, right? right? It's just 35,000 year old technology we've made more complicated for the sake of making more complicated, right? But, um, and it's not to say that these, these academies aren't doing great things it's just that they're not the they shouldn't be the only choice that these veterans have and we shouldn't have veterans on three-year waiting lists and having veterans getting their dogs taken away because the academy doesn't feel that they're taking their dogs out in public enough okay you know so like most of these the 99 percent of the vets do not need a medical assistance dog Right. right And what's even scarier is is there's all kinds of legislation coming to make it a criminal offense to have a fake service dog. Well, how so? Tell me about that. So there's, I mean, we got, well, first of all, I mean, a bunch of states are already passing it themselves, that if you, if, if, if somebody reports you as having a service dog uh-huh. and they deem it to find out that it, they think that it's a fake service dog, which I don't really know how they're going to do. I was going to say, I don't understand. I don't understand it okay. either, right? Okay. So, I mean, obviously, if you don't, if the trainer doesn't, or if the 
whoever has a dog mm-hmm. and they got the training for a service dog, if they do not maintain and do those things day in and day out, the dog is going to regress, right? right? So you're going to end up with behavioral problems. Um, and that is essentially the issue is that the majority of the vets, or majority of people know that dogs provide a benefit. But there's no real good way to get to training outside of these academies mm-hmm. because there's all this things happening like, you know, first of all, we got to get the language right. Service dog is not the best language for what they're talking about. Medical assistance dog is a better term okay. for what they're, ask, yeah, because so a, a service dog can be a working dog in the police, can mm-hmm. be, you know, working dog for the military, working dog for private corp- companies. And when you look at it, from a veteran's perspective, right? The 18 million vets, then people are like, hey, service dogs do so much good for service members. Well, that term, you know, plays right. with them. So let's right. clean up the language a little bit. Let's make it more specific. If we want to have this class of people that, you know, get doctor's notes, which to me baffles me because if you survey all the medical colleges across the country, mm-hmm. there's not a single one that teaches doctors on when to prescribe a dog. Yeah. So it's right. just an opinion. Right. And the opinion really is, because you wouldn't prescribe a dog to a person that's allergic to dogs, right? And you wouldn't prescribe a dog to somebody that's afraid of dogs or doesn't want a dog, even if you think it would help. So it's not a medical diagnosis. It's a personal choice and personal, it's like wearing a coat inside. (laughs) It's not, I mean, the doctor could be like, yeah, that might help you stay warm, right? Right. I mean, but you don't need a doctor to tell you, hey, to stay warm, you need to put a coat on, right? Right. Just like you don't need a doctor to tell you that, hey, dogs give you unconditional love and it's a good being to kind of hang out and the routines that you need to make your dog uh, successful Mm -hmm. and be able to take your dog into many of the dog-friendly places that we have all across the United States is a routine. Well, guess what? That same routine that you apply on your dog also helps you, especially if you're suffering from PTSD. Up and moving and and doing purpose again. Again, the four principles that we have for Sierra Delta is empowerment, purpose, innovation, and community. Mm -hmm. So what we're doing is taking this down to the community level. There are, dog training is not brain surgery, right? Not to say, I'm not trying to to say that dog trainer, there aren't good and bad dog trainers, of course, just like there are doctors and and everything else. But it's not an impossible career to take on and learn and become good at it, become proficient at it. And we have plenty of people that are proficient dog trainers. Actually, a lot of the professional, um, you know, for bomb testing and for cadaver finding and all that, they won't work in, quote, unquote, the service dog realm because of all the fanatics that are in there. And they just focus on the working dogs. But now when we go to them and we talk to them about the program that we have, they're like, yeah. We can help train these dogs for these purposes for these men and women. So let's talk about that. So I actually want to talk about the founding in a second. Yeah. Before we get to take a course step back and talk about that. So you engage with trainers who take the first step with the animals before they are paired up with? with no. Them. So what we what we do is, I mean, that's the other thing that's really, you think about all the people that pay tens of thousands of dollars to these academies to be able to name a dog. So they name a puppy, and that puppy will soon be, you know, after a year and a half of training, will be given to a vet, mm-hmm. right? Or they, sometimes people surprise vets at these events. The amount of people that call me like, hey, we want to do a donation, but we want to surprise the vet at our event with the dog. And I'm like, that's kind of cruel when you think about it. When you think about what does it mean to have your dog? Like, you guys, you have a dog? 
I don't know. My wife's allergic. Okay. So I grew up with dogs. So, I mean, but like if so, I mean, it's a, it's a, I mean, the dog picks the human as much as the human picks the dog. Which is true. Right? Yep. And all dogs have value, right. especially if we understand that we're not trying to get everybody to public access. Right? So public access means that they can't be denied where they go because the majority of the vets that have all these dogs right now mm-hmm. that are public access, when I go to events with them, the majority of the time their dogs are at home. Okay. So that tells me right away that they don't need the dogs all the time. So we're overspending and we're overcomplicating it for the wrong thing. It doesn't mean that those men and women don't have needs. They absolutely do. They're just not the same needs as blind and deaf people that this whole program is written on as it is right now. Right. Right? So there are times when you don't need a dog to go everywhere with you or you do want your dog to go places with you. So at Sierra Delta, we help everybody understand under the Life Buddy program, where they fit in based on the training okay. and based on their needs, right? So they sit down and talk with, we have a, 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 a clinical psychologist on staff. We have myself and Mick Gillitzer that are both trained in the uh, veteran benefits. We're also veterans ourselves. Our two canine uh, trainers are career army and okay. they were tra- uh, dog handlers and trainers in the army. They're also accredited by almost every agency out there with accreditations for dog training and they've spent the past six years at the VA studying um, the service dog issue studying is there a difference between emotional support dogs and full-blown service dogs and effective vets and that study was done and completed and there's no difference they took 75 vets gave them emotional support dogs and get 75 vets and gave them full-blown medical assistant dogs Got it. it's it is the the results were very very similar and, and the output of what the veterans and the and what they and what they deemed as helpful, right? That report is buried. It was supposed to be published last year, and it still hasn't been published. And they what still the VA, but it has to go through all this other stuff, right? So there's a big push for this Pause Act, um, puppies assisting service something okay you know what i mean wounded something like that um yeah puppies assisting anyways it's a some dumb acronym (laughs) so what what this what this act is asking for is that the va will start paying for service dogs for veterans okay okay on the on the only a certain category and this will also do only a certain category once you break it down so right now the va is spending 2.1 million dollars on 181 service dogs medical policy medical insurance policy okay do the math on that yeah right so i mean the va has 168 billion dollar annual budget it's only servicing 6 million of the 18 million vets and none of the family my position is before we ask the VA to start paying for dogs, which I believe in dog therapy, mm-hmm. and I think most of Americans believe in dog therapy because 72% of American households have a dog in it mm-hmm. right now. So I think we can get them to pay for that on a separate thing in the private sector, in the, pub, in the nonprofit sector, which we're proving at Sierra Delta. Mm-hmm. What the VA should be focusing on is health care for all veterans, mm-hmm. right? Um, too often people assume that the VA is taking care of all veterans. It's not even close. Yes, there's, yes. We could do five more podcasts. Exactly, right? <laughs> the complexity yeah. of the VA system. Right. 
And so everybody is trying to get behind this pause act, but when you read the act, what it says is that the VA will pay for a dog, but the vet has to fail all these other cognitive therapy, uh, uh, evidence-based therapies first, and have to show no improvement once they get the dog. Yeah. Well, what is the point of it then? Right. And the, in the so in the act it says that they have to to retain the dog they have to show no improvement. Right. Otherwise they take the dog away. And that's what or they just take the funding away most likely. I don't know. Yeah. You know, and that's what that's what's unclear. But even still, when you look at they they're not going to help any more vets. Right. Than what's being helped, and all it's going to allow is for these other agencies, these other academies, to be able to build the VA. So, to, well, to pull it full circle, right? Yeah. And I think you, again, bring, bring it back to your anecdote earlier on Walter Reed and the, the meal cards. And, sure. You know, these other administrative issues. What you're highlighting is that even if through the best intent. Yes. The government is getting involved in a space where it's going to enforce, you know, flow down a ton of regulatory yeah. issues. They're going to, there's going to be lobbying in play to say, like, what qualifies as right. a qualified, you know, trained dog. It's going to probably create a whole bunch of blocking mechanisms that can make right. it harder for vets to get there, yeah. that they can get easier through other mechanisms. And really what you're talking about like, is a supply-demand issue, which is that in order to get the therapy out there that vets can most benefit from, you don't have to train to the standard that's being enforced right. through some of this regulation. Right. So that, I mean, it really hits home. because, And this is where you step in with Sierra right. Delta. Talk about... Because you left it, you were leaving Semper Five Fund. You decide you're going to start this. Talk about how you found it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've already talked about what you're actually doing on the ground, but like, what what is the mechanism you go through to actually say, "All right, we're going to stand this thing up. We're going to make it." Real. So yeah, it went through some iterations. When I first stood it up, and and I was lucky enough to meet the Bishop family, uh, yeah. Bill Bishop and and his sons, and they founded Blue Buffalo, uh, dog food company. Oh, okay. He heard me speak. He believed in uh, what I was talking about, about trying to increase the amount of service dogs for vets. Yeah. And then I thought it was a legitimate way to really create some uh, new therapies in a way that the veterans would have more control and more fun, actually, right. being a part of. Right. And so having somebody like him behind me and that, and that company behind me really helped. When I first started out, Sierra Delta was going to be a universal application to help streamline getting these men and women into these various academies okay. all uh, you know approved yeah right. the guide through the guide dog foundation or through the uh international guide dog association and assistance um assistance dog international right yeah. so i was going with all the ones that were credited like a bit in like everybody else i go around i visit all these different facilities and they're great but i'm looking at the numbers of the capacity of what how many vets they can do. They're all at capacity at doing right. less than a thousand. Right. And, and it just didn't seem like it was too much. Right. But, it, and it was literally, they'd have these big graduations and like, we did it, we gave them a dog and now they're healed and now they go away. Right. And then they're waiting for the next veteran to come through. And there's no real wraparound service. There's no real community. None of these groups work together to bring like all that community together that have dogs. Right. Right. They're all focused on I, I make the, the analogy of like in dog world of their food, their food guarding. Right. <laughs> they look at these vets and these dogs as their their yeah. property right. that, you know, they don't want to share. And that's the thing. We got 48,000 veteran centric nonprofits and none of them work together. Well, and then the biggest irony, you know, this too, and that's what the vets miss most mm-hmm. is their buddies. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So 
after doing that for and we wrote we spent a million and a half dollars and we gave to all of the uh, about 12 or 14 different organizations a credit i don't want to name them. i don't want to get anybody in trouble sure, sure. but it didn't move the needle just like president bush said you know we we gave you know $250,000 grants here, you know, $300,000 grants there. Right. And they're still doing the same the same amount number. And actually, I got a thank you and an invitation to a breeding facility that was going to be named that's named after Sierra Delta. One okay. And I'm like, "No, that's not what, you know, we've got You want to increase volume. I want to increase volume, but I also want to utilize the dogs that we already have. Mm-hmm. You know, in this country alone, just with the large breed, and I focused on large breed in this research because the majority of vets want a large breed dog. We kill 800,000 healthy, trainable, and adoptable dogs every year in this country. Every year. You know, and I just think about all the veterans that are languishing that don't even qualify for these veteran, pro, these other uh, guide dog yeah. academies. Right. Right. And the amount of vets that do meet all the qualifications that we kept submitting, that they would get denied because they're like, oh, we looked at his Facebook page and he seems kind of intense. I'm like, he had three tours in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan and lost both his legs. What what did you think I was sending you? <laughs> that's, that's the point. That's right. <laughs> right. Well, and then if you and that was what was really starking was I looked back and. The majority of people that are running these organizations have never served. Their parents have never served. The employees that are in there have never served. They love dogs, which is great. And I'm not putting them down, but they don't understand the population that they're claiming to serve. And so I wanted to bring about something else. And so that's what we did at Sierra Dells. It's, It's basically an online community with training and support available that is for dog lovers, veterans, and people that love America. Right. I mean, we're going to be rolling out this app that we we have 300 vets on right now. We're trying to get the other uh, 200 vets on that from previous. And then we've got 300 vets that we're working with right now, getting into training, getting set up on our way to get to a thousand this year alone, just from us. If we we can think that this year we can get place and train a thousand vets and do as much as everybody else in the country combined and do it better. And that's the model shift. So right. basically you say, okay, we're going to stop running the existing traps. Yes. We're going to accept the fact that, as you put it, that in order to get dog therapy to the people that need it, we don't need to have animals trained to this specific right. regulatory standard. But what we can do, and it sounds like, you, you tell me if I'm wrong, we can be the glue that connects these things, yep. that gets to the vets, yep. gets them to the animals. Right. And then, it, well, tell me, also plug into the training process? Too. The training process is the key. Yeah. So the trainers are... We have trainers that are applying to become Sierra Delta certified trainers. Okay. Right? Across the country? Across the country. Got it. And so then we pay directly. And the trainers talk to the vets first, figure out what it is they want, what kind of dog that they have, yep. or what kind of dog they're planning on getting. Okay. Right? And figure out what their life goals are. We have some that are um, learned how to play trick frisbee with their dog. Yeah. And, and he talks about openly, like, when I come home from work, I go play frisbee for 30 minutes with this dog. And then I'm ready to go and engage with my family. Yeah, you know, and then we got other vets that are, their dogs are getting trained how to hunt. It's the same price, right? And and the dog is going to be a, a house pet too. But if that's that's their escape, then we want to give them a life buddy there with them. And then that life buddy there, when you see people interact, especially with a well trained dog, right? If you've gone to a restaurant that allows dog, and you see these dogs that are just chilling. You're like. Mm-hmm. Man, I wish my dog was like that. <laughs> we can get almost every dog to that level, which is like 
that far away from being a service dog in reality. Right. 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 And 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 having the vets go through the training themselves also helps build their confidence and helps build that because then they start competing with each other on that because they get badges on different things that they complete to include games. Okay. Right. And then we can have the branches of service competing against each other. It can be this whole thing. And the app houses all their training certificates, all their medical stuff, the feeding schedule, everything. So if any, if they do have a public access medical assistance dog, which we can also train either in one of these academies okay. or with a qualified trainer, all their documentations are right there. Okay. And we even have it set up to where they can, once we have the meetings with Delta and Marriott, they can email it right to reservations. Oh, okay. And so then reservations at these places can have, all right, here's all the training, here's all the grooming, this is legit. Yeah. Right? And right. then if they have issues, they can contact us, and then we can inter- get, in, right. get in and help mediate between the vets, right? Right. So we can do this at scale. Okay. Right? So we're going to get 1000 done this year. It all depends on how much money we can fundraise. Right. But there's no reason why we can't be doing tens to 15,000 vets a year on this community-based model right. and that everybody can see it happening, right? When we open up this app, the way the vets get their their points is by uploading the videos of them doing. And what the, the trainers in the community have to do is record the training and upload it to our trainers, uh, veterans and master trainers, mm-hmm. and they review to make sure. And we've already caught some people saying, yeah, it's done. And then we look at the video and like, no, no, it's not done. <laughs> Go back. <laughs> Right. Not until that that command is executed perfectly. Right. Right. And we're also able to monitor. We've kicked some people out for using prong collars when they said that they wouldn't. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's a right and wrong way to do all this stuff. Right. And the idea is that if we allow everybody in, so healthy vets included. Again, I'm looking at this as at the very least. For serving your country, don't you think they're that the rest of America is willing to pitch in a few bucks? So they have a well-trained dog for themselves and their families, which is the other thing I don't like about the guide dog model is that families are discouraged from interacting with the dog. The dog is only for the person with the disability. Really? Yes. Interesting. And that's inherently wrong for the dog and for the family and for the person, right? Yeah, I I claim no expertise in this area for sure, but that doesn't sound – well, I mean – at the very least, right? So, right. so even if that is the right model for uh, a blind person, yes, right, yes, right, and that's where it'll for the, what you're yeah. talking about the community you're trying to create, the connectivity you're trying to create, and yes. the fact that one of the issues that you're really getting down to is how our veterans interacting with their family and their colleagues at work and everything. How are you making that better? Right? Exactly. You can't you can't subtract the animal from that. Exactly. It becomes part of the family, which is one of the great things about Blue Buffalo's tagline, you know, feed them like family, right? right? You know, right. And, and that's essentially what we're doing at a bigger level. We're reestablishing the fire team for the vets mm-hmm. with that dog. And that's helping them become better in their squads, in their families, in their work environments. Right. And then producing this bigger community centered around the love of dogs, right? Not centered around what they did or didn't do, who was hurt, who was not hurt, who did how many tours? It's sitting around, we love our dogs, right? Right, And you're sharing what you're doing with your dogs. And you're getting rewarded for getting better versus what we do at the VA right now, we reward you for getting worse. Yeah. Right? Because if you get better, we take away your benefits. Take away the benefit or, yeah, the animal or... It, whatever. And right. that's not the right model. Right. It's just not. Right. Because we have a 150,000 of the 18 million vets are estimated to need a public access medical assistance dog. 
even if I didn't do anything, it would take the, the current establishment right now 150 years to meet that demand. And these are organizations that have endowments of like $300 million. Collectively? No, one. Individually. One individually. I don't want to throw it out there. Okay. I'm not, I don't want to. I can't afford to fight them. <laughs> and uh, But, I mean, it's not like they're broke. Um, and it's not like it needs more money. What it needs is more access. Yeah. We need veterans to be able to access, access these type therapies at different levels. And we need all the veterans to be able to access it, whoever is capable and willing of loving a dog. Because at the end of the right. day, even if you're a blind person and you don't want a dog in your house, you're not getting a guide dog, yeah. right? right? So it's, it's again, we have overcomplicated a very powerful and, and very attainable relationship in this country, right. especially with the amount of dogs that are languishing, right? right? And so by bringing this all together and then managing it responsibly, utilizing the technology at hand, right? right? So if a vet doesn't log into the vet or into the app, you know, in a couple of weeks, our veteran coordinators are reaching out like, hey, is everything okay? Like right. they don't have to, but we do encourage them because it helps us monitor what's going on. And most of them want to, right? right? They want to show what they're doing with their dog. Like, hey, look at what my dog just, me and my dog just figured out how to do, right? And we're building this, what we're calling um, Sierra Delta Games, which is a, an obstacle course that you do with your dogs, right? So we can start doing it once we can get back to actually, you know, being close to each other again. So my current life buddy, I just adopted him uh, from a great uh, rescue here in Wisconsin up in Appleton called uh, Unforgettable Underdogs. Yes. And so he was locked in a cage for the first year of his life. Okay. Com really underweight, really PTSD, right? Uh, and I took him on and he, I've helped him gain 30 pounds and he's helped me lose 15. <laughs> he's a German Shepherd mix and so he's high energy. Okay. Um, but, you know... We contracted with Sit Means Sit, which is a veteran-owned franchise in Madison. Actually, there's a, there's two in this area. There's one in Waukesha and one closer to Milwaukee. Um, we're able to go through there uh, with five weeks of training, and then we've got unlimited um, group training for the life of Loki. Um, and they've invited us back for some special trainings and whatnot. So we can always recontract them. I mean, again, and he's doing great. Like, I've taken him to restaurants where he's allowed. He lays underneath the table. You know, every now and again, he still barks, which we're still working on. It takes time. I mean, I just adopted him in September. Yeah. But you can already see, you know, just by working him through a training program, he's great for my family. That's what my boys wanted was a dog that they could play with, right? right. They run around, and they love him. Um, but that cost, that cost Sierra Delta $1,964, right? Not thirty-five grand. That's pretty efficient, right? And right. so and there, we've got others that just need a um, basic obedience, and then they were fine with it, right? right. And so that's like four hundred, six hundred, eight hundred, somewhere in there, depending. And we we're getting better at negotiating these contracts and understanding. And people are seeing the value that of being a Sierra Delta uh, certified trainer that we're going right. to be sending them a ton of veterans, right? right. Like because every veteran qualifies for our program, and we have ID Me. So now that we, we can verify service within 30 seconds. Right. So we are speedlining this, not to flood the public space with a bunch of dogs, but to get vets connected 
with right. the dog and with each other, and then hopefully with society as as a whole, centered around. And then we're we're taking care of two needy populations with one spend. We've got dogs out of shelters, right. and we've got vets out of loneliness and out of isolation. And it sounds flexible too. I mean, it sounds like the the training need of the dog and the person obviously are, are right. dependent right. in the situation. And it sounds like you can match to need yeah. as, as necessary. And that's it. And it, and it fluctuates. So some of the vets, depending on their needs, need a full medical assistance dog. Right. And that can be anywhere from ten dollars to $15,000 worth of training. Okay. And sometimes we have to get a bred dog for that or a dog that's got some pre-training on it. We typically... Depending on the need, if it's especially like if it's high, um, severe PTSD, mm-hmm. we still want them to take part in a lot of the training because we've noticed that really helps to bring back down their PTSD, right? We're, we're setting this up to where vets can meet on their own with one trainer, get cheaper group classes or set up these games, you yeah. know, especially these games online right now, which has really helped a lot of these vets as they're trying to suffer through the isolation of the pandemic and whatnot. Right. Now you got go play this bubbles game. And then you record it once you do it and you get a badge. And it's just like the Starbucks app or Starbucks Starbucks app or any other app. And it and it works, right? And it, probably if you got kids, they play Fortnite and when they get a new costume, they're like, oh <laughs> these these vets are the same way, right? right? They they level up and they're just like, yes, right? And it's something they can do in their home with a dog. It's not intrusive to anybody else, and and it's working, right? And it's working at a greater scale, which is what we need. Again, I'm not at odds with the academies. Right. We just want to be able to handle the 99.5% that they can't handle. You're creating a wider funnel. Exactly. More adaptive and flexible funnel that meets a need that, um, yeah, if it ends up, look, funneled all through the VA and through government regulatory issues, you and I both know it's going to create a ton of complications. Right. It's going to create a lot of frustration. And the money won't get down to where it needs to go. And that's the issue, yeah. Right. And that's not my saying that maybe there is some spot for certain trained dogs in the VA. I don't think so. I mean, you think about it. Like when Blue Buffalo took us on, it's because the, the model that we had when they did a national study showed that 94.7% of all Americans agreed with this mission. Like, so America's willing to pay for this. And the government should be paying for the stuff that is more complicated to pay for, which is health care, which is roads, all that stuff. So, no, the government should not have. And, and I testified at Congress uh, to a small group. Um, actually, I was invited by a lot of these academies to come speak, and, and they haven't invited me back since because <laughs> I, uh, when I was asked what government should be able to do for this, I said absolutely nothing. And we can handle this. Well, let's, let me ask this, though. So how do people help? Like, so we talked about all yeah. the work you're doing. How do people plug in? So SierraDelta.com. So we use the NATO alphabet. Sierra Delta stands for service dogs. Service dogs. So the vets understand it. What I have a harder time to do is explain it to the donors, but they get it once we do <laughs> once we explain it. And and the logo, I think, is great. So you can go to SierraDelta.com. So I try to get SierraDelta.org. It was taken. The man found out what we're doing and actually donated it to us. And so now we're going to be incorporating that into uh, that. So you should be able to go to SierraDelta.org probably soon. It just takes me a little while to figure out how to connect them all. But anyhow, um, SierraDelta.com. You can find us on all the social media sites. You know, uh, search Sierra Delta Service Dogs for Veterans. And we come up on YouTube. We come up on Twitter. We come up on Instagram, Facebook, you know, all that. And then 
you know, follow us on all those things. That helps us get meetings with companies, okay. right? They always, one of the things is they're like, hey, BJ, we like what you guys are doing. We love the numbers. I mean, since 2017, we've already helped 530, and we've got, like I said, 300 in the pipeline. You know, you, when you look at these other organizations since 2004 or 2012, they still haven't, they, they're right at 600. Yeah. Like, I'm closing in on them. We're going to pass them. And again, it's not to compare it, but it's just to show that what is scalable and that help is in the, the variety of service dogs that are out there is is more than just that medical assistance right. dogs. And that's what we really need to have discussion about. So, but you find us all there on on the social media. Get involved there. We have this great virtual event called Stepping Up, Step Up for Vets, okay. where um, it's a run, bike, walk. You know, go to SierraDelta.com, uh, go to our Facebook. You'll see it all there. You can sign up. We're going to have more dog walks and, and more local community events because that's really what I want to focus on. I don't believe in galas. I don't believe in all this stuff. I want to bring the people. And, and like I said, 72% of Americans have dogs. Mm-hmm. Let's bring them all together. Let's bring the trainers. Let's bring the rescues. Let's, let's celebrate dogs america and veterans like let's let's just do that every weekend how about that (laughs) so i mean right so you can contact us at you know info at sierradelta.com you can find me bj ganim um i'm on all those sites too i have my own webpage uh bjganim.com i'll be releasing my new podcast coming up in a couple of weeks called uh life on the good foot with bj ganim and uh just telling a lot of these stories both um some celebrity friends and, and, and their, what it means for them to be an American, you know, talk about dogs and all that stuff. And, and literally just trying to remind people how all of us Americans are more alike than we're different. Right. And that we've got to figure out how to come together responsibly and exist. There's room enough for us all. Right. right? We don't all have to agree. We don't all have to like each other either. That's the other thing. Like you can't hate, I don't believe in hate, but you cannot like somebody. just not interacting that's not you know that shouldn't be anything bad but yeah so please i mean find us um on the web sierradelta.com all the social media stuff sierra delta service dogs for vets bj ganem that's g-a-n-e-m um i don't know am i missing like no, that's when and when you go to the website. Obviously, there's an opportunity to donate. Yeah, and there's there's a good chance to see the programs and just keep connected with the group. And like you said on social media. Yeah. So I'd urge all our listeners to to follow. Yeah. To keep track and then to look to and and I look forward to to partnering with you in yeah. the state of Wisconsin. I think we'll have the opportunity to to help further your mission and help expose more people to what you're doing. One question we're closing with. And I urge everybody to go to your website to to follow you in social media, and then again look for more programming uh, that we'll have coming uh, forward mm-hmm. in the state of Wisconsin with both our groups and other groups too. I think partnering. Yep. But my question for you is, uh, before we let you go, is what is something that makes you optimistic about the future of our country? We've talked and we've sure. alluded to it throughout our conversation about the current dynamic of our society yeah. and, and all that's going on. But if you think about what makes you optimistic for the future, what's that? America. And the fact that we have so many different people, this is the most diverse society that's ever existed on the face of this earth. And yeah, it's, it's bad right now, but it could be worse. I mean, you look at other places that like, what I saw in Iraq that I always took away from was, I couldn't really tell the Sunnis and the Shias apart, but they were killing themselves, killing each other in ways that I thought was just horrific. Right. And I couldn't figure it out. And we're close, we're not there yet, but 
we're close with the way the Democrats and the and the Republicans are talking about each other, and and we need to take a step back and remember what we're all about. I mean, every type of person has worn this uniform and has right. bled for this country for the very reason for us to have these freedoms and to have our space in this in this great country. So my optimism comes from the fact that if you don't watch the news and you just interact with the people around you, everything's fine, right? You turn on the news and you listen to the politicians talk and the world is falling. Um, I The optimism comes that they can't keep us from each other forever. And once we get back to each other, I think we'll all be able to take a breath and realize that we all love music, we all love dogs, we all love good weather and good times, and we just want the best for ourselves, our families, and our neighbors. And that will come back through as soon as we can get back in close proximity to each other. And uh, I think that's right around the corner. And at the end of the day, um, we've been through worse as as a nation. We've been through worse, and it would be... Uh, a great insult to all the people who who lived in this country before us if we can't figure out these first world problems that we have right now. Yeah. No, I think that's, you've said a couple of very important things and uh, you've underscored throughout this entire conversation the importance of, uh, of human, yes, dog, but human connectivity. Yeah. And, um, and uh, as that's gotten pulled away, whole lot of problems have come yes out. And a big part of what you're doing is here at delta is bringing people together through sure. dogs through dogs yeah but you're bringing people together and you're helping to solve these problems that happen when we separate from each other too far that's right so it's awesome work we're thrilled to have you here we're thrilled to help you and work with you in the future i urge everybody to go to sierradelta.com thank you bj it's great to have you here and i look forward to seeing you soon yes sir thank you very much i'm kevin nicholson Thank you for joining us today on the Right Idea Podcast. Make sure to subscribe to the Right Idea Podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Ricochet, Stitcher, Luminary, or wherever you listen to podcasts.